take that and turn with me to uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians. Tonight we are finishing our series through this letter. We're looking at Galatians chapter 6 verses 11 through 18 tonight. 13 sermons through Galatians, which feels a lot longer in the evening service. It's taken us about nine months. Um, but this is uh, the conclusion of this great letter. I've become very comfortable here. It's one of my favorite books. I love Galatians. So let's read this final part of chapter 6 together. And then we'll pray and ask God to help us. And then we'll, we'll jump into it. So Galatians chapter 6, page 975 in your pew Bibles. Beginning in verse 11 and reading through the end of the letter. <clears throat> See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. But a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Spirit, come now and work as you continually are at work in our midst. Use your word to equip us to engage ourselves, our own hearts with the gospel. Help us to understand this text rightly, uh, not just intellectually, but to be able to apply it in practical ways so that we will be changed as you continue to enable us to bear fruit, spiritual fruit, fruit that will bud and last and taste very sweet. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You ever get an email that uh, you open up the email and all of the email is in all caps and, and you start reading the email and you kind of feel like you're getting yelled at, even if they're just saying, hey, how's it going? Um, that happens to me from time to time. And I'm always struck just by, by reading uh, an email that's a, in caps lock. They either accidentally had caps lock on or maybe they are trying to yell at me and they're doing it on purpose. Um, kind of like, whoa, settle down. Um, so first piece of application, don't send all caps emails. Um, that's, that's similar, I think, to maybe what the Galatians felt like when they read the end of Galatians. I love what he says there in verse 11. Look with what large letters <laughs> I am writing to you with my own hand. So normally Paul would dictate his letters to a scribe or an amanuensis was what their technical name was. But here in Galatians, he grabs the pen or uh, whatever it was he was using and writes on the parchment with big, large, caps lock letters. Now, Paul's not doing that to be annoying. He's doing it to emphasize, to summarize, and to emphasize and summarize with passion and with conviction. I'm also reminded as I read chapter 6, verse 11, of an experience I often had with my grandmother, God rest her soul, who's... Uh, when I was growing up, would often, when we were visiting her in East Texas, would often come across uh, Hispanic people. I have one particular memory of this. When I was a child with my brothers going to the swimming pool and my grandmother was trying to pay the bill to get us into the pool and this woman that was taking her money didn't speak any English. And in order to 
in my grandmother's mind, communicate more effectively. She just yelled louder. Do you understand what I'm saying? And the lady just had sort of a dumbfounded look on her face and a frustrated look on her face. So uh, that's not the most helpful thing to do. And that's not exactly what Paul's doing here. But nevertheless, we sometimes use different forms of speech and different forms of writing when we want to emphasize our point. You could almost imagine the last few verses here of Galatians, if we were to write them, underlining them or italicizing them or maybe even writing them in caps lock to make an emphatic point. And that's what Paul's doing here tonight. He's summarizing this entire letter, the letter to these churches in Galatia. Now, Galatians, as we've seen over the past few months, is um, it's a fierce letter. Paul is fierce in Galatians. He's, he's not just, though, fiercely combative. He's, he's I believe, fiercely pastoral. Uh, he's, he's fiercely concerned for his brothers and sisters in these churches, which he had planted not many years prior to writing this letter. He's concerned with their falling away from the gospel of grace. He's concerned with their consuming false teaching. He's, he's concerned that they continue to, to love Jesus as he's freely offered himself in the gospel and to, and to profess Jesus alone as our Savior. And really, we can summarize the whole letter of Galatians in two big points. Paul is really trying to say two things in Galatians. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, the first main thing that Paul is trying to say, to communicate, and he particularly tries to communicate this in chapters 2, 3, and 4, is that God is the one who saves. The initiator in the salvation relationship is God. God is the one who has made us, uh, given us a new standing and a new status before him. Justification, that declaration of a new status before God, the declaration that we are righteous is God's doing. He is the, the bus driver of salvation. We are not. That's the first main thing that Paul wants to communicate. The second main thing that he's tried to communicate in Galatians, which we primarily see in chapters 5 and 6, is that true spiritual change is, is an inside-out change. True change occurs, life transformation occurs, when our hearts are transformed, when the Holy Spirit of Jesus enters into our life and causes us to bear fruit, as we talked about extensively in Galatians chapter 5. So the two big points of Galatians, the two main things that Paul, again and again and again in various ways, has tried to communicate is that Salvation is of God alone. Justification is a free gift of God's grace, only received by faith on our part. And true change comes when the Holy Spirit rejuvenates and revolutionizes and renews our hearts inwardly. And that then begins to express itself in outward behavioral change. And so Paul really tonight is summarizing for us those two points, underlining each word putting each word in caps lock. This is his large lettered conclusion to Galatians. And so what I want to do is look at those two ideas with you in reverse order of how I've just explained them to you because that's how Paul takes them. And really I want to look at them in the form of a, sort of a yes or no question, an either or question. Uh, so the first point we want to look at tonight is, is, is true change primarily inward or outward? And the second point is, is the work of salvation primarily a human or a divine act? Now, you already know the answers. That's why this is review. 
This is not new, particularly if you've been with us through Galatians, but that doesn't mean you should turn off right now and take a nap. I'm watching you. Um, Pay attention. Paul is reemphasizing these things for a reason, and we should listen to them closely. So, inward or outward, human or divine? Those are the two points, the two questions we want to get out briefly together tonight. Uh, The outline's on the back of your bulletin. You're welcome to use that if you wish. So first, inward or outward? Is true change inward or outward? Look at verse 12. Paul says here in these verses, beginning in verse 12, four times he uses the phrase there, circumcision, the word circumcision or circumcised in its verb form. And twice he uses the word flesh. Look in verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. And then he continues on a similar note. So Paul immediately here in his summarizing conclusion gets back to the idea that these people, these false teachers who had come into the churches of Galatia, the Judaizers, their, their message to the churches in Galatia was that you must be conformed outwardly to what we think you need to be conformed to in order to be okay with God and in order to be a part of our community. You must basically become Jewish. You have to get circumcised. You have to obey Sabbath laws and other festivals. You have to become culturally a Jew. In order to be accepted by God, in order to really have life change, there must be outward conformity. The flesh is key for them. So for the Judaizers, it's not faith alone. It's faith plus flesh, to use the language of Galatians 6. For the Judaizers, it's not okay. It's not sufficient. It is essential, but it's not sufficient simply to confess Jesus as Lord. Confession is not enough. It must be confession plus circumcision. And so Paul, in this summary, is getting first at that idea. Is outward conformity what marks true change? And he begins to take apart that thesis. He begins to take apart the idea of the Judaizers. And he points out two things that make the idea that mere outward conformity is enough to change us. Uh, his two points make that idea pretty, look pretty foolish. So let me show you what Paul says in response. So given that he's talking about the Judaizers, he's talking about the fact that they want to force the Galatians to be circumcised, I want you to see first an important thing that Paul says in verse 12. He says, basically, the reason the Judaizers want you to be circumcised is so that they can what? Make a good showing. And then, secondly, so that, in order that, into verse 12, they may not be what? Persecuted. Now, isn't that interesting? What Paul is saying here, basically, about the Judaizers is that their motive, their incentive for trying to force a particular outward conformity on these churches is that they might look good in the eyes of men. Uh, This is pretty clear evidence that the initial persecutors of the church of Jesus Christ in the first century weren't the Romans, they weren't the Gentiles, they, they were the Jews, And Paul, of all people, is going to be familiar with this as a former persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying here is that these Judaizers are demanding external conformity. They're demanding outward change, not because they care about you and not because they love God. They're demanding it because they fear man. So so outward conformity is not a result of love for God. Outward conformity is a result of fear of men. So Paul immediately sort of begins to to take that apart here. 
And uh, I think this is a, a really important thing that he's doing here. He, he's, he's pointing out the inherent failure of this position of the Judaizers by, by going after their, their heart motives. And as we think about the, that together, the, the idea that all you have to do to be pleased, pleasing to God, all you have to do to be accepted in a community of faith is just basically become like them, that idea... That idea is always going to be acceptable to the world. That idea is not going to cause a lot of societal unrest. That idea is most likely not going to bring significant pain into your life. In basically every culture in the history of the world, um, basically conforming to a certain religious uh, establishment that was already existent and already kind of had its little home within the culture is, is totally accepted. It's not going to invite persecution. And so Paul's saying that's, that's what the Judaizers are after with you here, friends. But, but, but grace, on the other hand, believing that the gospel, believing that it's not, it's not because you've just sort of joined the club that you're accepted, but it's because Jesus has come and completely transformed your life, that is, that is actually quite offensive. Because just saying you just need to change a few things and then you're in is not really going to offend anyone because it doesn't strike at people's pride. But grace does. What Paul was saying does. The message of the gospel does. Because the gospel says you don't just need, need to make a few outward changes to be good. You don't just need to get circumcised. You don't just need to obey the Jewish festivals. You don't just need to obey the Sabbath. No, you need a complete revolution inwardly. You need to claim there's nothing I can do to make myself acceptable before God and crawl to Jesus at the foot of the cross begging him to save you. And listen, that... That is offensive. It's offensive to people that like to think that what we do merits some sort of favor with us and what we refrain from doing merits some sort of favor with us and and with God. And so Paul here points out that these Judaizers in demanding external conformity really aren't doing it out of love for God and they're not doing it out of love for you. They're doing it because it's safe. They're doing it because it helps them look good. They're doing it because it avoids persecution for them. And notice quickly the other way that Paul diagnoses this desire they have for mere outward conformity. He says, uh, verse 12, it's only to avoid persecution. And then look at verse 13. Here he says that really this, this idea that change is mere outward conformity doesn't even work on its own terms. Look at verse 13. Even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Now, he's already written about this in chapter 3. Remember what he said there, chapter 3, verse 10. He says, anyone who doesn't obey everything, all that is written in the book of the law, and do them, that person is cursed. And so he's saying, these Judaizers, the people in your life now, friends, that think that being a Christian just means looking like other people, that being a Christian just looks like doing a few things externally, and that's what's really going to change you. Those people are hypocrites because they're not doing the things that they demand that you do. And I want you, I want you to think about that with me for one minute. Because in our worst moments as Christians, when we're not living in light of the gospel and keeping in step with the Spirit of God, but when we're, when we're living as, um, as functional Judaizers... We do the same things. We demand 
that other people act in a certain way or live in a way that makes us comfortable, that makes us happy, or that makes us feel better about ourselves, all the while we're not doing the same thing ourselves. And there's all sorts of examples. Let me give you a couple. Uh, some, of you, some of you demand, and some of you, some of, some of us, I'm the same way, we, we, we tend and some, sometimes to, to demand that people treat us with a certain amount of dignity and respect and honor. And, and if they don't treat us that way, we're going to disrespect and dishonor and uh, take away their dignity by talking bad about them or thinking horrible thoughts about them or sort of avoiding them, and there's all sorts of social awkward tension. So we're, so we're mad at these people because they're not living up to our what we think our standard is of decency and honor and respect. And so in response, we are breaking the very thing that we think they're breaking. Some of us, um, some of us really like the idea that we're, we're, we're self-controlled, that we've got our act together, we, we don't drink too much, we don't have too much coffee, if any coffee, we don't have chocolate, we don't have red meat, your life's not very fun, but you feel really good about that. You, you get up real early and you exercise, you work hard, you keep your yard looking really nice, better than your neighbor on this side, and usually better than your neighbor on this side, and, and you just think, man, if these other people just have this, you might not say this, but you definitely think this. If, the, if these other people just have the same level of self-control and commitment to living the good life and to being healthy that I do, then everything would be a little bit better. Then I could accept them. Then our relationship would be easier. Listen, you've lost self-control over your self-control. You're so obsessed with self-control that you don't have any control over it. It's an idol. It's not a fruit, right? Self-control, when you lack self-control over your desire for self-control, you've plunged not into fruitfulness, but into idolatry, and you're a hypocrite. You see what Paul's saying here? You know, another one, uh, we, we hate it when people talk badly about us, especially behind our backs. We hate it when people gossip about us. It drives us crazy. And so what do we do a lot of the time? When we find out someone's been gossiping about us or talking badly about us behind our backs, we go and we tell our friends or our spouse behind that person's back that they're gossiping about us. We do the exact same thing that we're so flustered that they're doing. So what Paul's saying here is that when you think that change is mere outward conformity to a certain rule, your rule or the community's rule, you're inevitably setting yourself up for hypocrisy. And you're inevitably setting yourself up for slavery. That is not a freeing way to live. What Paul said again and again is that the gospel comes and changes us first from the inside. The Spirit comes and and works on our hearts. And then we begin to see outward change and external change. It's an an inside-out movement. So when the Spirit's really at work, we, we don't any longer have these standards and norms for ourselves and other people that we can never live up to ourselves. And the hypocrisy begins to go away. So when we live this way, Paul's saying, we're not free. We're enslaved to standards that we cannot ourselves attain. And we also break community, which has been another big emphasis in Galatians, by judging others for failing exactly where we also fail. See, to use Jesus' metaphor, we, we've got planks in our eye, and all the while we're, we're casting aspersions on people who have sawdust in theirs. And so, so Paul, in this summarizing document, is again calling us out onto the carpet and convicting us for our failure to live by the light of the gospel, for our failure to really believe that true heart change is what makes the difference, not external conformity to some man-made standard or even to God's law. 
Second thing that Paul says to summarize is that um, it's God who drives the bus of salvation, not men. So let's move there. We've seen uh, on the question of inward or outward, that inward change is what really makes the difference. And now we see that on the question of human or divine, in particularly in verses 14 through 16, it's, it's the divine initiative that God takes that ultimately is going to result in our salvation. So Paul's answer is, is really clear. Look at what he says. He really uses two different, two different ideas or images to make this point. For, verse 14. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which, now this is the key, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So he writes there about the cross of Jesus, which right is, is, is the key symbol of our faith. And he says, through the cross, he has been crucified to the world and vice versa. Now, what does that mean? What he, what he means is that the demands and the desires of the world are no longer meaningful or relevant for the one who sees the power of the cross. Seeing the power of the cross, Paul says, puts, puts an end to our boasting. And in, in fact, when we get that only at the cross and only through the cross are we forgiven and accepted, only when that happens will we stop boasting in anything else. So in other words, to sum that up very briefly, uh, recognizing that God has taken the initiative to reconcile us to himself at the cross removes all ground of boasting that we've done something to reconcile our relationship. So, so Paul ties this idea of boasting with this ancient torture device, the cross. And he says, when you really get what's happening at the cross, that God at the cross is showing the extent to which he would go to save. When you really get what's happening at the cross, all the other grounds for boasting that you think you have dissipate. They, they go away underneath your feet, leaving you only with the cross to boast in. What do you boast in? What is it that makes you sort of a puff your chest out? What is it that makes you feel self-congratulatory? What is it that makes you think, if others knew, knew this about me, uh, I, think it would, I think I would be pretty flattered. What is it that makes you realize, you know, this really makes me look pretty good, especially compared to so-and-so and this guy over here. What is it? What is it that, that you boast in? What makes you think you, you're favorable? What makes you, um, or maybe put it this way, what is it that you want <laughs> that you think will make you favorable but that you don't yet have? What is it that's keeping you up at night thinking, if, if, only, I could, if only I could get here, if only I could be this, if only I could get to that salary level, if only I could have this job, if only I could have that wife, if only I didn't have this wife or this husband then I would be there where I need to be. Then people would look, look up to me. What is, what is it that you boast in? Because what you boast in, what, is it that, what, is it, what it is that makes you self-congratulatory, what it is that makes you puff out your chest, that is your functional salvation. That is the thing that, makes, that I, you think identifies you. It, it gives you credibility. It gives you peace and rest, you think. And what Paul's saying here is that when you really get the gospel, you'll understand that no human achievement or effort or ability or standard will ever really give you rest. 
will ever really give you peace, much less satisfaction from a divine and just God. Only the cross of Jesus Christ and seeing the cross of Jesus Christ will, will bring that. When, when you don't think, if I could only achieve this or because I've achieved this, others are pleased with me and God might be a little bit satisfied with me. But when you look at the cross and say, my sin is what put Jesus there. My sin is what put Jesus there and God's wrath there is being poured out on Jesus, not just for my sins, but for my attempts at righteousness. When you get that, then you really begin to grow. Then you really begin to understand the gospel. But we, we so often don't boast in the cross. We boast in other things. You know, some of you boast in, some of you boast in family. Some of you think, because I came from this family, it was a very healthy family. We had a mom and a dad. Everything went well. My dad taught me the Bible. We had family worship five nights a week minimum. I went to good schools. I never really rebelled. I went to a Christian college. And now I'm having my own kids. And I'm trying to do the best with my kids. And, and you know, when I look around, I'm just so grateful for my family. And, and, and deep, deep down, you really think that you're a little better than other people because of your family or that because of the family you came from and the family you're now trying to start, in some way, God might be pleased or satisfied with you. And you, you, you sort of bring that to him. You think, here you go, God. Some of you, some of you boast in uh, your place. I've never done that, but some of you do. I'm just kidding. Some of us boast about where we're from. We think if you're from a certain place, if you grew up in a certain culture, if you've had particular experiences, then in some way that, that makes me feel puffed up. It, it, it helps me think better about myself. And, and very subtly and very slyly, I'm, I'm taking that to God and I'm saying, here you go, God. Some of, us, some of us boast in our religious and theological attainments. We think, I've read... Calvin's Institutes, both volumes, including the table of contents and even the index. You're weird, by the way, if you've done that. Um, and I have done that, so, you know. Um, some of you think, I, I've served more than me. I served on 12 committees last year. Uh, some of you think, I, I've given not just 10%, I've given a quarter of my yearly earnings. Uh, you know, subtly, slyly, here you go, God. Check that out. You're boasting in all of these things because you think that to some degree they're going to make God pleased with you. And they're going to make others pleased with you. And Paul says that is antithetical to the gospel. The only reason that God is pleased with you is because Jesus is infinitely pleasing to him. And through connecting to Jesus by faith, you are infinitely pleasing to him. You see, the danger of boasting in your attainments and in your achievements is that you can't just throw the best part of your life before God. You have to throw all of your life before God. You don't just get to say, here's the best of me, God. And even that, by the way, isn't good enough. But you have to say, here's all of me, God. And he has to see all of your brokenness and your messiness. And the great thing about the gospel, Paul's saying, is that, is that Jesus is perfect every, in every way, all the time, everywhere. And, and Jesus, instead of you, has come to God and said, here I am, God. Take me and not him. Accept me and not him. And so when you get that, you're boasting in your own achievements, you're boasting in your own merits, you're boasting in your own background, begins to go away and you start to boast. You start to boast in the cross. And the second concept, real quickly, that Paul points to, to show us that salvation is of divine doing, is verse 15, new creation. Neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but what? 
the new creation. New creation is everything, he says, and circumcision is nothing. In other words, what matters is not what we do or what we don't do, but what God does in totally revolutionizing our lives. And listen, I want you to see and I want you to hear again what a hopeful and freeing concept that is. That is, a, that is a gospel concept. And to really believe that, friends, to really get that is to be transformed. Because we're so tempted, again, to believe that what we do or don't do is what defines us before others and before God. But the gospel is that God, of his own initiative, has redefined us in the cross. He has made a new creation of which we are a part. New people, new community, new world. And he's done it of his own initiative. He did it freely. You know, the Judaizers thought that circumcision, or lack thereof, was definitive. And we tend to, t- we tend to think the same. It's, it's my singleness or my marriage that defines my identity. It's my lack of employment that defines my identity. It's my broken, uh, broken relationship that defines my identity. It's my straying kids that defines my identity. Or it's my religious commitment that defines my identity. It's my baptism that defines my identity. It's how often I have my quiet time that defines my identity. No! Circumcision or uncircumcision count for nothing. What you do or don't do is meaningless Before God, the judge. The only thing that matters is that God has taken the initiative in making a new creation of which you are a part by faith. That is the gospel. That is Galatians. That's freeing. The bottom line is that it's not that we have to accommodate ourselves to a God waiting for us to shape up or ship out. It's that God in grace has accommodated himself to us in the person and work of Jesus, knowing that we would never be able to shape up. He's done that not because we deserved it, but because he loves you. There's a story that, and this is what I'm closing with, uh, from a guy named Brennan, Brennan Manning. You might be familiar with him. He just recently passed away. Brilliant, wonderful holy Christian author, great guy. This is from his book, The The Ragamuffin Gospel. And he tells this story from the perspective of a surgeon who has just operated on a young lady. And they're in the post-operating room and uh, the surgeon is observing this lady and her young companion. And here's what he writes. I stand by the bed where the young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish. He's operated on her mouth. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of the mouth, has been severed. She will be thus from now on. I had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut that little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed. And together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me. Who are they? I ask myself. He and this wry mouth that I have made, who gaze at at and touch each other so generously, greedily. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this? She asks. Yes, I say, it will. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. 
But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. And, and all at once, I know who he is. I understand, and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with God. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I am so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. God has twisted his lips to accommodate himself to your palsied, broken, sin-torn, and shattered life. And he's done it because he, he loves you. As a husband loves a bride, as a father loves his children. If we, friends, can, can hone in on that and that alone, Paul says, all else fades and change happens. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that uh, the gospel is true, that you are the one who has come. You are the one who has done what is necessary to forgive us. You are the one who began the work, and you are the one who will complete the work. We thank you that change is radical and real and lasting for us who have believed in Jesus, not because of what we've done or what we've conformed to, but because of you sending your spirit into our hearts to bring us newness, to shatter the stone hearts that we once had and give us hearts of flesh. Father, we can only, at the end of this letter, fall on our knees again and say thank you for saving us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for unmerited, undeserved favor. Thank you for your infinite love, which in your own freedom you have chosen to lavish upon us. And Father, we ask that you help us not to seek to merit favor with you, not to seek to be functional Pharisees or functional Judaizers. And even when we are subtly doing that in our day-to-day lives, will you send your spirit to convict us of that and to bring us into a fuller and deeper understanding of the gospel. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.